Joseph Farrell. Thank you for being on Radiant Craters again. Sure. Uh, yeah, Joseph Farrell of Giza Death Star. So while you're listening, if you check out Giza Death Star, G-I-Z-A-D-E-A, well, Death Star, we can spell that part. <laughs> Giza Death Star. You know, it's not only a site where you can find out about uh, uh, Dr. Joseph's, uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell's work, but also, it's an amazing uh, community. There are uh, live uh, vid chats uh, every couple of weeks where uh, Joseph Farrell answers questions from the community, and they're a great time to uh, listen in. You can listen live, or you can listen after the fact. They're they're there pretty much forever. And also, there's a forum there where you've got a bunch of uh, you know very very intelligent, smart, irreverent people. <laughs> some reverent, some not. <laughs> It depends on how you want to look at it, but there's a gaggle of eccentric people, and uh, you know, uh, everything's old. Everything old is new again. It used to be that forums were kind of how we communicated um, mm -hmm. online. That was kind of social media. Then, of course, there was Twitter and Facebook. But it seems like we're going back to more specific forums now because of the censorship. Yep. You just find like-minded people, like-minded topics, like you, the Death Star community. And then we can all just be as irreverent as we want to be. And for the most part, there's not that much irreverence. It's really a great, great community. Uh, and uh, so, Joseph Farrell, what do you think about the uh, well, the, the forum there on Gee the Death Star? Um, it's really kind of had taken on a life of its own, I imagine, over the years. Well, yeah, it has uh, almost to the point that that it's it's difficult for me to follow everything going on on the forum. Um, I I exercise a bit of moderation on it, but uh, to be honest with you, people post faster. <laughs> I can moderate everything being posted. So at times, yeah, things get out of control and people start arguing with each other and then someone will email me, you got to check into this, but for the most part, I exercise a very light hand. Um, I was just taken to task by one of the forum listeners who told me indignantly, I think, that he or she was never going to say the Ukraine. Oh. <laughs> it is simply Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So anybody who knows me knows that I'm a stickler for proper English. So I just completed a blog uh, <laughs> on why it is, in fact, the Ukraine. I don't care what the Ukrainian government says, and I certainly don't care what John Kerry or Senator Lindsey Graham Cracker have to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it is the Ukraine. Uh, you know, so I, I, I'm I'm so sick. I, I'm you know I'm to the point because of what I see going on on some of these forums, not just my own, but you know other website forums, with with the absolute bastardization of the English language. You know, if we keep this up, we're not going to have a language that we can communicate <laughs> with anymore. But anyway, yeah, the forum is an interesting place. Yeah, definitely an interesting place. So if you're looking for an interesting place, some intelligent, eccentric people to communicate with, it's pretty lively. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty lively. I can say that. Pretty lively. Pretty lively. It's fun. And uh, so, um, you know, a couple of things I wanted to chat about since I got you. Uh, mm -hmm. 
And one is, I, I love what you how you 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 labeled yourself, or you well, you referred to yourself as the uncanonical Joseph Farrell. <laughs> I think you. Well, I, th I think in one of your video chats. Well, I am. Uh, I'm using that term uh, not as a term of art. Uh, I'm using it accurately because most yeah. Orthodox jurisdictions would regard me as non-canonical. That is to say, I I'm I I. I claim to be part of the Orthodox Church, but most of the Orthodox jurisdictions in this world would not acknowledge that. Now, there are exceptions, but most of them would not. Uh, but in terms of my in terms of my thinking, in terms of my theology, in terms of my piety, it has been and continues to be formed by Eastern Orthodoxy, whether or not they want to acknowledge it or not, that, you know, that's not my concern. What they do is not my concern. So um, that it, it's really an accurate term. And the reason I use it is uh, years and years ago, I was in the OCA, the Orthodox Church in America, which is a so-called canonical jurisdiction of the Orthodox Church in this country. And in my opinion, it is it is the jurisdiction that has uh, the best historical claim to be the successor of the Russian jurisdiction that once had the ecclesiastical, the sole ecclesiastical governance of the Orthodox Church in North America, because of course the Russians. Uh, through Alaska and their uh, outposts and colonies in California and so on, brought orthodoxy to, to North America. Uh, and so they assumed, they assumed jurisdiction of, of orthodoxy in this country. That all changed with the Russian Revolution because the then Patriarch of Moscow, who had been the uh, Russian metropolitan that ran the jurisdiction in this country. It was a fellow by the name of Tikhon, Tikhon uh, Bilavin, uh, Saint Tikhon Bilavin, was elected to be the patriarch, first patriarch of Moscow after the restoration of the patriarchate, which occurred right about the same time as the revolutions in Russia. So in other words, the, the jurisdictional unity in this country collapsed as a result of the Russian Revolution as the different ethnic jurisdictions scrambled to place themselves under the patriarchate that had that ethnicity. So in other words, the Arabs in this country all scrambled to place themselves under Antioch. The Greeks in this country scrambled to place themselves under the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople, or in a few cases, uh, the Patriarchate of Jerusalem or the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Uh, and there was a, an attempt by the Russian jurisdiction itself in this country to create an independent American jurisdiction. And as a result of that, that jurisdiction in turn created a very tiny, I call it the microdot jurisdiction, because you'd miss it. If you don't have a big magnifying glass out and you're really looking for it, you'd miss it completely. Uh, created a Western Rite Orthodox jurisdiction with a, a uh, convert bishop. And 
I, I'm going around Harvey's barn, but but just to tell people where I'm coming from, I joined that microdot jurisdiction after mm. leaving the OCA uh, several years ago. Now that jurisdiction, um, I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to make a very long story as short and uncomplicated as possible. As the jurisdictional unity in this country was fracturing with everybody scrambling to place themselves under an ethnic patriarchate back in the old world, uh, every resulting jurisdiction, and I mean every single one, resorted to actions and acts vis-a-vis -vis each other and vis-a-vis -vis the original Russian jurisdiction in this country that any honest appraisal could of of the canons of the church could only say that everybody was acting uncanonically or non-canonically. So as far as I'm concerned, these jurisdictions can talk about their canonicity all they want. And the plain fact of the matter is they shouldn't even exist canonically. Their existence itself is non-canonical. So you know I don't <laughs> I don't particularly care what they say about me. Uh, you know, <laughs> they mm. can say it all they want. Mm. Well, well it's, it's a great title. I like it. And and that's one of the first things I wanted to mention or talk about was uh, what something that we left off with last time we were chatting was mm -hmm. that the, I'll call it the conflict in Ukraine, you know, yes. is really uh, a war against orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. It could be said. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that, because even though that that, that war is supposedly old news now, it's it's, you know, it's gone. Right. It's over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but it really isn't. And so uh, right before you'd mentioned that, I had begun to hear that referenced um, from many different news sources that mm -hmm. ultimately orthodoxy, a war on orthodoxy, a conflict with it was at the core of this. So mm -hmm. right when you said it, it seemed like people were catching on to it. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this requires some explanation. If, if you are mm -hmm. Eastern Orthodox, uh, particularly if you are a convert to it, as I am, uh, I had been raised in a very traditional Methodist church. I had been baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So at, by the time I got to college, watching the churches collapse, I gravitated toward the Anglican Communion in the Episcopal Church. And for a very short period, I was, I was a very high church Anglican. Um, and then the Episcopal Church went the way of everybody else. It, it overnight decided it was going to become modern. Mm. <laughs> okay. uh, so the only place left for me at that point was Orthodoxy. And as, as an Anglican high churchman, you, you are really trying to practice a kind of um, Catholic faith that is not papal. In other words, if, if you go to an Episcopalian church, you're going to see a ritual that that uh, in the traditional practice would have resembled a Roman Catholic mass only in English. Um, you know, the vestments are the same. The, the, the ritual follows more or less the same pattern and so on. 
Well, orthodoxy as such is a non-papal Catholicism, and it is mm -hmm. it is like Roman Catholicism. It is as old, and in fact, both the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches will tell you that up to about a thousand years ago, they were both part of one church, and that about a thousand years ago, there was a split between the two, and they mutually excommunicated each other. This is an important part of the story, because what both are telling you is that they, at that point, regard themselves as the Catholic Church and the other group as not. Hmm. So if you are Orthodox, the, the way that the West tends just by mere culture to look at the Eastern Church is, is as a, a thing that departed from the norm, that norm being the West. So even, even, let's say, we have this idea culturally in the West that when we say the Church, and notice the definite article, when we say the Church, what we mean is Rome. We mean the papacy. And that's true whether you are a Christian or not. In other words, an atheist in the West, if you were to say the church, what's the atheist going to think of as a kind of a reflex culture action? He'll think of Rome. Yeah. If you go to the Orthodox cultures and say the church, what they will immediately think of as the cultural reaction is the Orthodox church. And the Roman outfit is, as a, a famous Russian intellectual, Alexei Komyakov, put it, the Roman church is viewed by the Orthodox as the first Protestant church. In other words, the Pope is really more Protestant and has more in common with Protestantism than that whole Western phenomenon has to do with Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is to understand the Orthodox Church, you must jettison everything you think you know about Christianity. Because first of all, even the creed that you say on Sunday during the liturgy, or as the Western Church would call it, the Mass, even the creed is different. And interestingly enough, when you dig, you'll find out that the Orthodox Church is saying the original version of the creed. There's a little clause referring to the Holy Spirit that says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. In the Western Church, there was an addition to that phrase in the creed made on papal authority, incidentally, that says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Mm. Okay. So in other words, we're even worshiping different doctrines of the Trinity. And I can assure everybody that once you change that doctrine, you've changed everything else everything else, not just a little thing here and there, but everything else. Um, part of this also means that the way that the two churches think through theological questions 
is that the order of questions themselves is changed. So when I say forget everything you think you know about orthodoxy or Christianity when you try to understand orthodoxy, I mean it. Mm. For example, uh, this last vid chat, I have a, a traditional Roman Catholic that's a member of my website and is in the vid chats and asks questions. And he asked the question uh, having to do with, you know, what about um, what about the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary, you know? And my response was, no, we do not have all of those devotions in the Orthodox Church because those things that you associate as traditional devotions with Rome, within Roman Catholicism are, in fact, not traditional. They arise after the schism between the two churches. So, yes, you will find the veneration of the Mother of God in the Orthodox Church, but you will not find the veneration of the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the Orthodox Church. By the same token, you won't have the whole idea of the Fatima prophecies and consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary because that's not a doctrine that the Orthodox accept. And in fact, there are Orthodox that find offense with it. Mm. Uh, in in the Orthodox practice of the veneration of the Mother of God, you will never, you know, I'm picking a bunch of little things just to try to illustrate for people that you've got to jettison literally everything, even the minute things that you think you know. In the Orthodox veneration of the Mother of God, you will never find her depicted without Christ, ever. Mm. If you do find her depicted without Christ, it's not orthodox. Mm. Okay? In other words, we will never, number one, have a statue as a religious icon, because, again, that is something that the ecumenical councils forbade. So even statuary, the, the differences of religious iconography, are telling you something uh, that is culturally important. So in other words, you cannot have, as I discovered in one Roman Catholic lady chapel, you have the, the tabernacle for the reserved sacrament at one end of the chapel, and at the other end there is a statue of the Virgin Mary. So to venerate the one, you have to turn your back on the other. Hmm. In the Orthodox Church, that would be absolutely verboten. Ausgeschlossen. Can't do it. <laughs> Can't do it. So there are a lot of these little things. The point is that these little things add up to huge cultural influences that are hovering in the background, not only in the West, but in the East. And if you're unfamiliar with the way that those implications bind the culture to a certain way of thinking, then you're bound to make missteps in dealing with that culture. Absolutely mm. bound to do it. So what's the United States trying to do now? Well, as, as you put it in your question, I genuinely think that, it, and this is particularly true if you're, if you're Orthodox and particularly if you're a convert, because you notice this, this Western assumption that its culture is the canonical measure of Christian civilization and that they therefore insist on misinterpreting 
the categories of a non-Western type of Christianity and try to mold it into the West. And that will never happen. When the Orthodox Church excommunicated the papacy for heresy a thousand years ago, we meant it. Mm. We meant it. We were not playing games. We had nothing politically to lose or gain. And every attempt of the Western Church since then, the Council of Ferrara Florence in the 1500s, pardon me, the 1400s, uh, a, a big reunion council that was summoned by the papacy, and he invited Orthodox delegates, and then the Orthodox delegates get there, and basically the council was, okay, you guys submit to us. And most of the delegates from the East signed the decrees of that council, but and here's another problem that the West has with Orthodoxy, but one Greek archbishop by the name of Mark of Ephesus refused to sign and he said, the testimonies of the Westerners are corrupted. I perceive there can be no compromise in matters of the Orthodox faith. And because of that, the union was shattered almost immediately. Because it, if you want to get the Orthodox Church to submit to Western doctrine, you have to get every last bishop. There is no pope figure in the Orthodox Church. You have to literally get every last diocesan bishop to go along with it. And I remember uh, an old friend of mine, the Archbishop of Dallas, uh, Dimitri, uh, <laughs> there was a, a period when the local Roman Catholics were attempting to get communion in the Orthodox Church, and a, a Roman Catholic got on the communion line during Sunday, and and the bishop turned her away said, and said, you must be Orthodox to be able to commune here. And the uh, Roman Catholic says, well, the Pope said that we could do it now. Oh. And, and Dimitri, Dimitri, his response was, was classic. He just kind of took the chalice, you know, and pulled it close to him and, he, and leaned over to this individual and says, the Pope has no jurisdiction here. Hmm. Uh, you know, and this this is the problem. Um, you know, the Western Church thinks of things in a kind of centralized way. The Eastern Church does not. There are different doctrines of of the Trinity. Those doctrines have affected liturgy and piety and everything else. So you are dealing with a wholly different kind of of Catholic Christianity in the East than you are in the West, and because of that. When you examine the history, this is the other reason that the East does not go through a Reformation. You've, we've got to remember, Reformation, Counter-Reformation, all of the upheavals that occurred in the West never occurred in the East. They're not mm. there. Uh, Vatican II and changing of the services into the vernacular. Well, it's always been in the vernacular in the East. Always. So when, you know, when the uh, missions uh, to the Slavs, Cyril and Methodius, uh, start the missions to the Slavs, what do they do? Well, the first thing they do is they create a Slavonic alphabet because there's no written language. And then the next thing they do is they translate all the services and all the service books into Slavonic. So there's, there's a completely different culture and attitude 
in, in the Eastern Church. And if you are Orthodox and look at the conflict in the Ukraine, and particularly what the Ukrainian government has been doing, it is very clear that they mean to stamp out every connection between the Ukrainian church and the Patriarchate of Moscow. There has been a, a recent attempt by the, on the part of the Ukrainian government to stamp out the uh, connection of certain Ukrainian monasteries and, and uh, traditional holy sites to the Patriarchate of Moscow. There has been an American and British government-sponsored attempt to create their own independent Ukrainian church under the jurisdiction of Constantinople. So, in other words, we have started a schism in the Ukrainian church that the rest of the Orthodox Church has not accepted. And by the rest, I mean the patriarchates of Moscow, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria have, have said yet to this attempt. So in other words, there is a war on Orthodoxy going on right now. And it has been even recently reflected in this country by statements of some people in our own government that have been basically to the effect of, well, watch out for those Russian Orthodox because they're all agents of, of the Russian government. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, again, is part of, you know, there's a truth to this because there was a period during um, the Soviet Union and particularly under Joseph Stalin where the hierarchy of the church was basically forced to allow the NKVD, later the KGB, to recruit clergy as agents for the KGB to spy on people internally. Mm. But, you know, again, this is, this is nothing new. That was basically the system that was in place under Peter the Great. So there is, this is the other problem. There has always been uh, within Orthodox cultures, there has always been a close and tight association of the church with the government, even in the case of so-called officially atheistic states like Russia, like the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, you'll find this over and over again. Um, the way I try and illustrate it for a, a Western American audience is Imagine if the FBI, which is not so hard to imagine anymore, the FBI doing something like this, but imagine if the FBI suddenly got a wild hair and suddenly decided the Mormon church is a threat to national security. <laughs> okay, so we'd better keep an eye on those people out there in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? Well, the best way to do that is recruit a bunch of them. And the next thing you know, you're setting up a whole department in the FBI that is the Mormon department. <laughs> okay. And pretty soon, what is really happening is the Mormon church has taken over a department of the FBI. And as they have mm. taken over an entire department of the FBI, their influence and power within the organization expands. Yeah. And this is exactly what you see going on in the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union collapses, and again, you're, this, this is going to short-circuit a Western Christian, 
But when the Soviet Union collapses, who's there to make sure that the the outgoing government does not lose control of its nuclear weapons? It's not the KGB. It's not the GRU. It's the Patriarchate of Moscow. (laughs) Wow. So in other words, for a brief period after the fall of the Soviet government and during the early years of the Yeltsin administration, you have the Moscow Patriarchate involved deeply in maintaining the Russian nuclear deterrent and making sure that that deterrent was safely handed on to the new government under construction. So you had you had the patriarchate assuming a, a voice for all of the Soviet nuclear weapons building and construction facilities to make sure that they continued in existence. Otherwise, in the church's understanding, the Russian state itself and the Russian culture itself were at risk. So to a great extent, it was the church that preserved all of this. Now, this is just, you know, this, this is not in Western thinking at all. No. Uh, but it should tell people that you are literally playing with fire because you're dealing with a different type of, um, you're dealing with a different mentality, even under the modern Russian state, than you were under the Soviet Union. A totally different mentality. And it's, it's one deeply rooted in the culture. There's a reason that in the Orthodox Church, uh, armies are blessed before they go off to war. Because the state is viewed by the church as the defender of of the Christian people. Mm. So the West is playing with huge and things that, that it completely misunderstands. And if it thinks it's going to manipulate orthodoxy into submission, it's got another thing coming. Um, mm. it, it alarms me, quite frankly, Craig, what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It does seem like in Ukraine, we are seeing, we have seen churches, yeah, I believe, seized and assets sold. So, I mean, I haven't seen yeah. articles recently, but definitely. And then you wrote about it over at Giza Death Star. Oh, yeah. That, that when we view the Ukraine as this superb democracy, this absolute delusion of <laughs> fiction, you know, this. <laughs> and. That's kind of left out of the mainstream media, I would say, the American consciousness to a great extent that, you know, it's Zelensky, it's the Ukrainian regime, however a person wants to define that, mm. um, that is uh, knocking over churches. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it is, you know, the, the regime in Kiev is, is itself, we need to remember, something that the West had definite hands in putting into power yes with the maidan coup so in other words the i i blame the the anti anti-orthodoxism if i can coin the term yeah on the part of the kiev government as a an implication or as a consequence of this insane policy that we are going to turn that whole country into a 
forward base for Western cultural interests. The reason the West has to get rid of orthodoxy, the reason it's attempting to paint a big target, and if you, if you don't believe me, folks, I'm, I'm giving you a warning now, particularly to uh, my Orthodox brothers and sisters in the West. Do not think you're safe in this country and do not think that Western Christianity likes you. They don't. Mm. And the reason why is Orthodoxy is a, by long established custom and tradition and doctrine. In other words, this is not merely a loosey-goosey, feely, good proposition. It's coming out of the hard intellectual core of the faith itself. Orthodoxy is a constant challenge to the endless progressivism and revisionism of the West. Mm. The West began with women's ordination, and now they're ordaining homosexuals, transgender, going allowing men to compete in women's sports. There is no limit to progressivism. Ask a progressive how much progress is enough. Mm. And they don't have an answer because there isn't any. It's the endless progress itself that keeps them in power. Anything that betokens a traditional opposition to any one of the planks of the progressivist narrative is therefore a target that you must eliminate because it poses a threat to that narrative. This is particularly true of Eastern Orthodoxy. We're not going to bow the knee and accept women's ordination, if, even if the Pope, and especially if the Pope <laughs> says so. So in other words, Russia, if you look at it from that point of view, Russia is the last standing major power representation and symbolization of what was traditional within Western civilization. This is ultimately why they're at great pains to try and break Russia up because that means they will be able then to deal with, with the church in any way that they, they choose. And I fear that that way is going to, uh, you ain't seen genocide anything like what I think these people are capable of. And we're seeing a little bit of it in Palestine and Israel right now. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, what they're doing to Israelis and Palestinians is kind of pale by, by what I think they have planned for everybody else. Um, they've got to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it seems it's like, okay. It, it's, it's a thermonuclearly armed church folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh gosh. That needs to be the new, the new uh, yeah. <laughs> logo. Well, there's the reason I say that is that there is actually a book out there by a Russian scholar that details the role of, of the church in maintaining the Russian thermonuclear arsenal after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it points out that the current patriarch of Moscow, Kirill III, was, was at the time a metropolitan, which is kind of like a, a cardinal archbishop to give equivalencies. Uh, but that the current patriarch of Moscow was heavily involved in that activity. And, and the title of the book is 
Russian nuclear orthodoxy. The book has, you know, a typical Russian three-bar cross on the front, but part of the cross is a big missile. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, give, it gives you the idea of um, how, how massively wrong the West can be when it looks at at, at the East, because the West always insists on looking at the East through its own crypto-papal lenses, and that's never going to work, ever. Mm. Won't happen. And what's that book called again? That was Russian Nuclear Orthodoxy. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, it's it's quite a read <laughs> for uh, those of you out there. I, uh, I got to check that but out. Again, it's it's very informative because it you know it documents in some detail this this uh, this unusual connection that it doesn't really compute to the Western mind. We, we just, we just, you know, religion to us is a private affair. You go have your religion over there, but don't bring it into the public square. Perish the thought. Well, it's exactly the opposite in the East. Mm. If it's, if it's not in the public square and you can't bring it into the public square, why bother having a religion? Yeah. So, you know, the mentality is completely different. Mm. And Something I know many people in that I know in the, the Western church at this time, kind of the, the woke orthodoxy, I guess you might say, mm -hmm. in <laughs> the Western church, you know, woke work a dark sea, whatever. Um, woke Wokadoxy, yeah. So in, in the woke of the West, I know people that are truly suffering because they're very devout yep. churchgoers yep. and the Pope is just making them crazy. Because crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, they are maybe more, let's just say, progressive or uh, right. uh, that's the wrong word, but let's say more liberal or than the uh, Eastern Orthodoxy would be, you know, by by their nature, they are. But they're not woke. Right. I mean, and so the, the, the Pope just keeps it's almost like no matter what you can't believe he would say, he says it and then he'll outdo it the next mm -hmm. week. And they're really having a hard time. And I wonder if this is causing I don't know. I, I, I'm watching people I know. They're very, very devout, but mm -hmm. the Pope is making them crazy. Mm -hmm. And they don't doubt their personal faith, but they're, but they're just, they're starting to lose their, I, I think that that church of the West is losing its solvency in a yes. sense, because yeah. they just can't, they just they, can't do it. All right. I'm, I'm going to be completely. Yeah. Frank, Throw it out there. blunt and honest here. Uh, I, I, first of all, feel and sympathize deeply with traditional Roman Catholics um, because I know, having been through this process in the Episcopal Church, I know what it is when you wake up one day and your own hierarchy has mm. turned completely against your tradition. I I feel it acutely because much of my family is Roman Catholic. I have an mm. older sister who I love and cherish, and she is the sweetest and most devout person that you mm -hmm. could ever meet. However, that does not prevent me from telling her 
and telling any traditional Roman Catholic out there, the problem is your faith. Mm. And that faith includes the idea that the Bishop of Rome speaks infallibly ex cathedra and ex consensu ecclesia and has a universal and immediate jurisdiction over the entire church. In other words, the problem is the papacy. You are not going to solve this, and you are not going to see the return of any sort of traditional faith because Rome itself, having concocted the damnable doctrine, attempted to inflict that doctrine on the Orthodox Church a thousand years ago, and on top of that made a change in the creed to make sure that we were saying what the Pope told us to. And we said, no, go your way, be infallible, and the end result is going to be the loss of union and unity in your church. Mm -hmm. Reformation, and we now have over 22,000 Protestant denominations. So the chair of unity is actually the chair of division. And the claims of the papacy, I'm going to go further. Yes. If you look at the claims of the papacy as they have been defined at Vatican I and Vatican II, the claims of the papacy sound awfully familiar. If you are dealing with someone claiming to be infallible and who is able to speak ex consensu ecclesia without the consent of the church and therefore has an irreformability, that sounds an awful lot to me like someone in the angelic hierarchies that set himself up in the place of God. Yes. So you're not going to be able, my dear Roman Catholic friends, to be obedient to your baptismal vow and maintain the faith, which, by the way, is in every baptismal vow. That makes you responsible for the content of your faith. And when your hierarchy no longer is obeying it, you must. Hmm. I cannot be more blunt than that. If you fail in that obligation, then you yourself are as guilty of the heresy and schism of which you are complaining. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. The papacy is the problem squatting square in the middle of the last 1,000 years of Christian history. And we know what that history has wrought. It has wrought burning of people at the stake for not going along with what the papacy demands. It has split the Western church into thousands of fragments. And then in an effort to update itself and appeal to the broad masses, it threw out everything good in its own tradition that remained, that remained of that tradition that connected it to its first 1,000 years, namely the text of the Mass itself. So this is not and was never for me 
an alternative of a church I wanted to join. And by the way, folks, if you think I'm speaking bluntly about papal claims, go read the response of the patriarchates of the East to the invitation of Pope Pius IX to attend the First Vatican Council. It's called the response of the patriarchs of the East, blah, blah, blah. I think it's dated 1848. They mince no words. Mm. They mince no words. And let's remember what Pius IX said when one of his own cardinals at Vatican I, Cardinal Juidi, by the way, said, Holiness, I can't find this doctrine, meaning papal infallibility, in the tradition. Mm. Pius IX's response was, Son io tradizione. I am tradition. Now, that ranks right up there with one, as far as I'm concerned, with one of the great sacrileges and blasphemies of history. Hmm. Because it's the Holy Spirit who guides the church into all truth by the statement of Scripture, not the Pope. And if the Spirit is guiding the whole church into truth, that means that the bishops of the church at large are a principal means of determining what is in accordance with that tradition and not. So it's bishops and councils. And by the way, that means it's going to be a very fractious history. Tell me that you get a bunch of bishops together in a council and you're not going to have some real knockdown drag out arguments. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm. It's human nature, folks. <laughs> so the centralization of the church yep. ended up ended up ultimately in the uh, Western Church to be the fracturing of it into yeah. many denominations. And well, let's go further. There's yeah. an ex let's look at the Council of Constance. There was a period in the medieval church where you had three sitting popes. Three. Three. Okay. And they're all mutually exclusive. <laughs> Okay, hmm. it's kind of hard to have an irreformable, infallible, unredeemed, uh, infallible papacy speaking ex cathedra if you've got three popes at the same time. How does that work? Well, the Council of Constance says <laughs> it doesn't work, <laughs> and we are hereby abolishing all three of you. And we are saying once for all time that by golly, councils are superior to popes. And we're electing a new pope. <laughs> and, okay, once you're elected, then we'll acknowledge you're the real pope. So they did. That's what happened at the Council of Constance. And just, wow. as, soon, just as soon as the council had disbanded, the pope is back to his old tricks. I'm it. I'm the supreme authority, not councils. And we're back to square one. At Vatican II, this, this is something that... that I have to point out to my dear Roman Catholic friends who, first of all, think that doctrine is part of tradition. It isn't. But even at Vatican II, go read the documents of Vatican II. They're very illuminating because you've got all of this cotton-mouthed, flannel-mouthed theological pronunciante of this and that and everything else concerning Catholic doctrine and practice. When it comes to papal authority, 
alone amid all the documents of Vatican II. Alone. All of the traditional language is there. So in other words, the central tenet of the Roman Catholic faith is the papacy. It's not the incarnation. Mm. It's not the mother of God being the true Ark of the Covenant. It's not the Holy Trinity. It's not the real presence of Christ and the sacrifice of the Mass. It's none of those things. The central tenet, the core on which everything else is based is papal supremacy. Sorry, I'm taking a hike from that doctrine. Mm. Ain't bowing the knee to that one, folks. No way. Yeah, and it seems to lack a certain aspect of finesse when it comes to common yeah. sense. And who would who would buy this idea? I mean, I know people. I mean, I wonder did were they forced to or did they? Of believe course it? they were. They're forced to. Um, at Vatican I, you had a number of Roman Catholic hierarchs. Uh, Bishop Kenrick of Little Rock in, in this country did not accept papal infallibility, for, I think, for about 10 years. He would, not, he would not publish the decree of the council in his diocese until basically, you know, through financial emoluments and threats and other things, they were forced to submit. Uh, Bishop Strassmeyer in Croatia, was a bishop that did not accept the doctrine. Uh, bishop Josef Hefele, the famous German um, patristics and conciliar scholar, uh, held out for 10 years. Uh, the Archbishop of Paris, Archbishop Dupanlu, left Vatican I in the middle of the council and packed up his bags and went back to Paris and his complaint was, I went to the council, an archbishop, and I'm returning an acolyte. Mm. So in other words, the other thing that you see happening gradually in the Western church is the change, not only in the nature of ecclesiastical authority, but in the nature of, of piety and the sacraments themselves. Let me give you an example. In the right about the time of the schism between the churches, when a bishop was consecrated, the the bishops consecrating the the consecrand had an examination of his faith, and the bishop being consecrated had to give his own testimonial or declaration of faith. And that declaration spelled out the doctrine that the bishop believed. And if that belief was in accordance with the teaching of the church, the bishops would proceed with the consecration. Why is that important? Because what is being handed down to that individual is the deposit of the faith itself. So in other words, the bishop is especially responsible for the content of the faith and for the ritual in which it is expressed. That's key. Mm. After the schism, the, the declaration of faith or the oath of faith is changed to an oath of faithfulness to the Pope. Now, folks, if you're 
if you're able to think analogically, this is like the change in the oath that the soldiers took in Germany. Oh, yes. Because in Germany, the soldier took an oath to protect the Constitution of the Republic. Adolf Hitler comes to power, and the oath is changed to an oath to obey Hitler. This is exactly what happened in the medieval Western church. Mm. The bishops started to swear an oath of fidelity and obedience to the papacy. There was another change that happened in the Western church. How many times do you go to a friend's for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or whatever, and you will hear a prayer, prayer to God the Father through Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. The prayer is binitarian. Why? What happened to the Holy Spirit? No yeah. prayer, no prayer in the Orthodox Church ever, 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 let me repeat that one more time, ever is offered to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. No. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, unto all ages of ages. Amen. So what happened to the Holy Spirit? Why did the Western Church, all of a sudden, which tells you it believes in the Trinity, all of a sudden quit expressing that in its piety. Well, in the service books, you will see phrases like glory, period, or through Jesus Christ, period. Okay? Now, in service books, those are abbreviations. They're telling you that there's an entire phrase that you say at this point. So glory, period, means glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Okay? So the glory is an abbreviation. You don't just say glory. <laughs> okay? So what happened to, through Jesus Christ our Lord, being misunderstood as the entire phrase and not an abbreviation for a phrase? Why? Well, it's that change in the West in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit expressed in the creed. The Holy Spirit who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. So bang, right there, you've kind of fused the Father and the Son and made the Spirit less important. Mm. And once that gets out of the bottle, then yeah, you've got a bunch of priests saying, Mass, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I'm in. And that gets handed down to the Protestants, and it gets handed down to the evangelicals, and voila, we're no longer Trinitarian, we're Benitarian. And having mm -hmm. lost the Spirit, then you've got certain Protestant groups that try to recapture him. Charismatics. Pentecostals, speak in tongues, have the baptism of the Spirit. On and on we go. This is all consequences of Rome and papacy and the papal claims and the changes it on its own authority pretended to foist on the church. Hmm. 
Yeah, the West is at war with orthodoxy. The West is at war. Even in its own church. Can't have that. <laughs> oh, and and when we look at uh, something I love watching is the uh, a, a new trend we'll see on YouTube. It's called uh, like 4K walking through cities. And you'll see yeah. it's basically, it, basically a person with a nice GoPro or a better camera than that walking <laughs> through cities, you know? Yeah. Or walking through, uh, you know, uh, trails in the woods. So they're fun to watch. And if one wanted to get a grasp of this war against orthodoxy and, and what's happening mm -hmm. is watch a 4K video walk through St. Petersburg. Yes. And you're going to know that something is wrong here yeah. if you're in the U.S. It's going to be abundantly clear. Yep. Um, and it's like that well, feeling. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there, there are, you know, there are, I know what you're talking about. There are similar little walking tours of Moscow. Yes. And I actually, I, I think I've actually watched the one in St. Petersburg that you're talking about. And I've watched a little walking tour uh, in Moscow from yes. Red, Red Square to, oh, I forget where it was. But, but what impressed me about both cases was first of all how clean yes. everything was secondly the people were not obese mm -hmm. thirdly every now and then you might find someone but for the most part there were no people with purple or pink or green hair yeah there were no cars driving by with boom 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 <laughs> Jungle yeah. music playing at enormous volumes. And off in the distance, you might hear a church bell or a clock chime or something, you know. And in general, everybody was well-behaved and clean. Yes. It was the exact opposite of a what is now a, a Western city with noise, garbage, filth, obesity, rainbow colored hair people screaming at you it was civilization yes yes mm. yeah yeah and it, and you can feel the culture there and the respect for the history yes. Yes. the identity uh yes. the one in one of the 4ks that i saw going through moscow you see uh of course more modern buildings but you see right. you can see russian history Yes. Walking through Moscow, and some there were some uh, government buildings that were built during Stalin's time. Yes, and these things they look kind of terrifying. <laughs> they look like Stalin. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, but even in even in that harsh uh, uh, reality, um, they're still beautiful. They're still well, works of art. Speaking speaking of Moscow buildings and Stalin, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stalin, uh, there was there was a famous church in Moscow. It was, it was the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. And when Stalin took power, he had this big old cathedral blown up so that he could erect this temple of new Soviet man or some such nonsense, <laughs> some such nonsense. So he blew up this beautiful old cathedral. Um. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russians rebuilt it. 
the whole thing. Wow. Original iconography on the original plot of land that it stood on. And you can go on YouTube and look at the consecration liturgy of the cathedral. Um, the patriarch of Jerusalem is in attendance, uh, as are a bunch of other Orthodox hierarchs from all over the world. Patriarch Kirill is uh, officiating. And by the way, folks, Patriarch Kirill was a colonel a colonel mm. in the KGB. So in other words, again, you know, this, this makes us do this in the West. Folks, I can assure you this connection between the, the church and the state and particularly intelligence agencies is as old as the Byzantine East Roman empire. Hmm. It goes away back. And I'll tell you why that connection is there. And it's it's a bit of different thinking about realpolitik than, than is the case in the West. The Byzantine Empire was a definitely Christian empire. Its thinking was Christian. And the Byzantine Empire would much rather assassinate a leader or cause an overthrow of a government than go to war. Mm. So in other words, even there, when you think that, that you understand the logic or reasoning behind something as Byzantine as Byzantium, the reason why, once you, once you scratch and sniff at what they're really trying to do, is very different than the Western thinking. This is why when Russia, and again, I hope people are really latching on to this. This is why when modern Russia in the personages of Vladimir Putin or Dmitry Medvedev is repeatedly in the last few months warning the West that we are capable of all sorts of horizontal escalation. And every option is on the table all the way up to nuclear. What the West is hearing is, oh, the Russians are threatening nuclear war because we are the ones that think in terms of this binary system of thinking. The East does not think that way. And I'm going to give you a theological example in a minute. What the, what the Russians are warning us is if you want to drop drones on us, we can, and if you don't cease and desist, we'll retaliate in kind. If you're trying to drop drones on our leaders, we reserve the right to drop drones on you, Mr. Soros, mm -hmm. Mr. Schwab. Mr. Gates, Mr. Biden. So this is the other thing the West doesn't understand. 
Will Byzantium, in this case Russia, will Byzantium resort to the same type of thinking in order to avoid an all-out war? Yes, it will. And the Western leadership does not understand this because it's thinking in that binary way. In the West, we think of free choice in a binary way. Mm. We have to have the ability to sin. Otherwise, we don't have free choice. So our, our, we are culturally conditioned. And again, there are deep theological roots. And yeah, they have all to do with Western Christianity. We are conditioned to think of free choice in this binary dialectical way. But if you stop and think about it, that's really a rather wooden-headed, dumb way to think about free choice. Because whether or not I choose to fix my car tomorrow or go grocery shopping is not a moral dialectic of any sort. Both choices are innocent and both choices are perfectly good. There's no evil involved in that, in that situation. Or... I can choose to rob a bank or kidnap somebody tomorrow. Now, both of those choices are evil, but there's no moral dialectic between them either. So in other words, choice is simply multiplicity. Mm. And the morality depends on the intention and the actual deed itself. Where, oh West, are you getting this stupid idea that in order to have free choice, you have to be able to sin? And by the way, there is an answer to that question. I'm posing it not as a rhetorical question. Hmm. Go out and dig. And when you dig, you'll find out that the same guy that gives you that moral dialectic is the same guy that gives you the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and is the same guy who gives you predestination in the Western Church. So in other words, what I'm telling you is that there is a theological, oh, by the way, and it's the same guy who gave you the nutty idea that what you inherit from Adam and Eve is the moral culpability for their sin. You inherit a sin nature. Heard that one? Yes. <laughs> it's the same guy. It's the same system. This is why there is much more in common between your local Southern Baptist preacher and the Pope of Rome than there is between either of those and the Eastern Church. Hmm. You all think the same way in the West, like it or not, all of you. And you're not, you're not even aware that you all think the same way. And if you are aware of it, you don't know why. Why don't you know why? Well, number one, you haven't bothered to go out and do the work. And number two, your churches aren't telling you. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Yeah. We might be having a problem here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, the West definitely has an issue with uh, oversimplistic uh, strategies and arguments <laughs> and, and, and more of a, you know, binary right and wrong rather right. than there. There's no. I would say that there's a lack of intellectual ability to see the complexity of any situation. It's not simply right or wrong. So many things are, you could say gray, 
you know, like even, even understanding people's motives, like here in the West, there'll be, there tends to be a, no, a notion of uh, Putin is simply evil. Craig. And it doesn't go, it doesn't go, it doesn't go beyond that. There's Craig. no, yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I can tell you got to say something. What is it? <laughs> you said the word simplistically. Yes. <laughs> I'm in trouble. No, you're not. Okay. No. At the core, at the core of all of this, papal infallibility, original guilt, sin nature, predestination, free will being binary, mm -hmm. Holy, Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, at the heart of all of those, all of those things, is a little doctrine called the divine simplicity. Oh. Oh. Okay. Oh. And what does that mean? Well, to quote the guy who I've just finished talking about, and from his work, De Trinitate, written, oh, let's say circa 400 A.D., I'm not going to tell you who this guy is. He is the Western saint. Okay? According to him, and I'm quoting him now, mm. in God, to be good is the same as to be. And to be is the same as to be true. A equals B, B equals C, ergo... To be great is the same as to be true. Mm. And let's go further. Just as the Father is holy and the Son is holy and the Father is life and the Son is life, so too the Holy Spirit is life because the Spirit is certainly holy. And the Spirit is certainly life. And therefore, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son because the Father is holy and the Son is holy and the Father's life and the Son is life. And by the way, the Father's Spirit and the Son is Spirit. So, ergo, what proceeds from them is also the Holy Spirit. And therefore, hmm. one could say the Holy Spirit is the entire Trinity. Voila. Now, you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some problems here. <laughs> and you're doing that because you're a rational person. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you can see there are immediate problems with this whole thing. Um, yeah, and I'm quoting you now. I'm not, I'm not making up a thing I just said. Mm. The thinking and the categorical confusion, you'll notice what's going on there, is attributes are confused with the essence of God. Yeah. And they're all confused with the persons of God. So in other words, all the categories have just done what? They've all evaporated. Golly, I wonder if there's a connection here to all of this business about transgenderism and not being able to discover, you know, what reality is. 
if everything, if every category collapses into every other category, I wonder if there's a connection. I wonder if maybe this development in the West has something to do with its theology. Mm. Folks, it has everything to do with its theology, and you're not going to solve any of this problem through politics or voting Republican, or for that matter, voting Democrat, because they both subscribe to this theology. They're both at war with orthodoxy. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. yeah, and we see it manifest in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, in, in everywhere. But, but specifically, yes. I would say in the Ukraine at this moment, we definitely sure. see this. We see this manifest. And it's, yep. it's almost like, like, like the... Uh, uh, right now, the Ukraine is like the, the woke uh, aircraft, like, like the, the unsinkable woke aircraft carrier right there is the yep, ukraine absolutely but there ain't no <laughs> aircraft carrier that's unsinkable but there can be a belief that that it's unsinkable and that tends to be i think a lot of what's causing this and it's you know what us. aircraft carriers are big ass targets missile, <laughs> yeah missile magnets yeah <laughs> missile they're missile magnets, magnets. I yeah yeah <laughs> but that belief that I know. it's unsinkable it, that's it's 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 not <laughs> case and and this idea that oh yes we're going to project american power and we're going to send these big ass gigantic <laughs> targets to the eastern mediterranean and we're going to face down russia with these puppies i got you. We're trying to face down a country that has hypersonic cruise missiles that can span the globe and change flight in, change the course in flight. And mm-hmm. our carriers are going to scare this? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh-uh. <sighs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I just... We, we, my fear, Craig, is that in our, in our Western hubris, we are rolling the dice like Adolf Hitler did at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. Uh, We've got this really cool military and we're going to show it off by marching to war with Russia. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That didn't work out too well. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I, I feel bad for how many of the Ukrainian yes. troops and uh, must be feeling at this point because they're forgotten now. And they have been used. They've been used. And I think this is this is going to be a wake-up call. And somehow yeah. this war against orthodoxy, it is now, has yep. a battlefront in Israel. Yep. And the thing is, is that, I hope they both realize that they are both in Ukraine and Israel are the uh, delusional unsinkable aircraft carrier. Yeah. And, and I'll go further. Uh, My, my hope and prayer for, for the Ukraine, for, for the Israelis, for the Palestinians is that they wake up and realize that when you are being used as proxies and pawns by the great Anglosphere empire, as soon as you're done serving their purpose, they forget about you. You're as, soon, 
<laughs> yeah, think Afghanistan, folks. Yeah. You know, um, Israel has banked on this country being there for it for so long. And, you know, they don't call it perfide, I'll be on for nothing. We've, we've merely inherited the mantle from the British. Mm. And, you know, Britain as a reliable ally? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, we, we are... My biggest fear, Craig, is that in, in all of this somersaulting gallop to to try to understand the world and and make it over entirely in our image is in the in the long run mm. we are driving our closest allies away from us we're going to end up with a system of alliances that consist of andorra and monaco because, you know, if we keep treating Israel or the Palestinians or the Ukrainians or the Germans or the Poles or the French, you know, if we keep treating them this way, we're going to lose all of them. I, I think we're well, we're well along the way. And I've, I've said this many times. We're well along the way to losing Japan. Mm. Well, it's that feeling that you, you've mentioned in, I think, your last vid chat. I'm sure vid chats before that where it's this feeling many of us have had, even since we were children, we were born with it, that there's something happening. And I think that yeah. we're beginning to see it. I mean, it's here. For instance, yeah. there's an amazing book called um, Human Smoke. And yeah. I forget the author, but it, it, the whole book is mostly all newspaper clippings. Mm -hmm. And it's about the Jews during World War II trying to find somewhere to go. They're floating around in ships saying, hey, hook yep. us up. And, and the world's kind of like, no, you know, and so Israel's created, here's a safe place for Jews. Now you can be safe. You're safe here. And especially with recent events, now Jews are safe nowhere. Everything is, everything is, there's something happening. And I think something that many of us felt since we were young or turned on to at some point, it's happening. If you watch oh, the yeah. world, that moment, that thing we felt was coming, it it's here now. It's here. It's here. It's here. Yeah, I've I've heard, you know, I listen to talk radio occasionally and I in the last week I've heard a number of Jewish people living in this country calling into the radio host and saying they no longer feel safe in this country and the reason and can't blame them. Mm -hmm. The reason that that they're saying this is they're watching all of these college campuses erupt in support for Hamas. Now don't get me wrong. Mhm. Mm by the same token, I am, you know, I think I think there's something wrong with a narrative that says, okay, we're we're warning the people in Gaza, get out, we're coming in. Um, from one standpoint, as a humane exercise, I can understand that. But from a cold-blooded military calculation, I can't. Because if you are promulgating a narrative that this is now an existential threat against your country, then it makes no sense to warn an enemy that we're coming in. And by the process of attempting to empty the enemy out of the territory, you're actually spreading the contagion that that enemy represents. You're scattering those terrorist cells to the four winds. 
-hmm. So I don't, there's something wrong with that part of the narrative. The other part of the narrative I'm not buying is that you cannot tell me. And there are now um, rumors of this in, in the Israeli alternative press already that there were no warnings about this attack. Mm -hmm. The Mossad is one of the best intelligence agencies in the world, particularly in its ability to recruit human agents. So you cannot tell me that it did not have human agents inside the Gaza Strip that were picking up enough chatter to indicate something was afoot. Egypt even warned the Israelis. So there's there's something wrong with this narrative. I'm not saying that what happened to those uh, victims in Israel was not barbaric. It was. I mean, let's be honest, the religion of peace and brotherhood is pretty barbaric when you read some of the texts that it considers holy. But um, there, this this whole thing bothers me all the way around. The narrative just isn't making sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I watched the, as I looked at the map and I, I saw what the, what was accomplished by Hamas, you could say. Yeah. Um, I thought to myself, looking at the distances that they traveled and right. the strategic strikes yep. they did on, you know, IDF soldiers who are sitting there flying drones around and just get right. taken out. I mean, whole barracks full of people. It was pretty right. rough. And so yep. I'm thinking the, the distance they covered and the effectiveness there were some serious high-speed operators. Yes, and these and these guys don't have time for playing games like no. shooting up music festivals. They don't. Right, right. So somebody now maybe yep. there was some maybe there was some paid people because it got masked. I'm also wondering where are the bodies? Who are the people who attacked? They seem to have disappeared. Yeah. I, yeah, where, whole, where are they? Who are yeah, they? You're you're asking the very same questions that I'm asking and other people are asking, and it it doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, people have said, well, it's all about the, the oil and natural gas reserves off the Israeli and Gaza coasts. And again, to me, uh, to me, Craig, this is just kind of the typical Western oversimplification. Everything has to be about money yes. and energy. And, and I don't, it is that, yes, that's certainly a, a level. And it's certainly one of the important factors. But to say that that's the only level at which this is functioning, no, no. Um, I, I I genuinely think that there is some sort of uh, cultural agenda here, and I think you know I'm going to crawl way off to the end of the twig and say that I think this agenda is to create such a religious conflict that the traditional religions, be they Judaism, Islam, Christianity, for that matter, Hinduism, you know, uh, might as well throw them in there, that all of the traditional religions of the world are to blame for this mess. And mm. after we have a sufficient bloodletting, uh, then we'll bring in something new. Mm. something new and shiny and pretty oh yeah and uh, it will have the pope's blessing by the way it'll it'll all be okay now 
Oh yeah. gosh, the Pope and Klaus Schwab landing in a flying saucer <laughs> I, in the White yeah, House yard. There you go. <laughs> Time to fix everything. We've got Time the answer. Time to fix everything. Yes. <laughs> fix everything. You know. Well, <laughs> I don't want to keep you forever. This has been incredible. Um, I will say, Joseph has a new book out: "The Demon in the Euchre, Angels, the Demons, eight, Plasmas, yep. Patrick. Oh gosh, Peristics <laughs> and Pyramids. Yep, Peristics and." I've had you for a while, so I don't want to, you know, keep you. I will mention that one thing that I, I will say, along with what you just said, is I loathe to quote Obama. I mean, it's painful. <laughs> yeah. Well. But he did recently, you know, write in an, in, in an article. I do believe he said that you know we have lost the world. Yeah. And I'm like, darn it, I wish somebody else had said it. But sometimes when somebody you totally do not agree with on every level says something that's true, it's even more true. Now, what would be more interesting to know is why did he say that? What's, what was the process of reasoning leading mm. up to that statement? Um, you know he's not he's not a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination so i would be i would be keenly interested in finding out why he said something like that and i i happen to agree with him yeah we have lost the world you know the the signs like i said before craig the signs really began to come home to me when shinzo abe was prime minister of japan and started initiating that unbelievable set of diplomatic initiatives with Russia at the same time that he was ramming uh, through the Japanese diet all of this increased def defense spending going beyond their you know their constitutional cap I think it was two percent GDP um, it, it's really it was really breathtaking because to me that was the sign that Japan is Japan is going to continue to say that they're our friends and our ally, but this is really about them breaking out from underneath the umbrella. That's what this is about. Mm. And, and it's you go ahead. well, I think that's going to continue. Yeah, and we're seeing you look at South Africa you know, yep. kicking the French out. So that yep. moment that yep. we've all felt was coming. Yep. It's here. It's here. It's, it's here. here. And that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so yep. much, Joseph Farrell, for being on the show. Thanks it's for just been me. absolutely amazing. This is good stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll right. send you a link when it's done. It's already in the forum, right. but I'll, I'll send you a link when it's done. Take care. All right. Yep. You bye too. Bye-bye. All right. And.